Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local in Warren, Pennsylvania, this is Smoke, the disappearance of Damien Sharp. So just to be really clear, this person said that they were at the area of Big Bend. They had Damien with them? Yes. Okay, they picked him up somewhere? They took Damien. Okay, they took Damien there. They picked him up downtown or something? I don't know where they Okay, made. Yeah, they they all went up there together. Okay. Then they confronted him, and things didn't go the way X wanted to go, and so he had to be taken okay. care of. It's pretty much And the they were confronting him over the drugs. Right. And this person held a gun to, or X held a gun to, to another person's head. The other person's person head, and that person had to, okay. unfortunately, shoot Damien. And you got the sense that he was left up there? from what they told you, or left somewhere oh, I, in I concrete. said, well, where is he? He goes, he's cemented. He's in Big Ben. Don't worry about that. Got it. Thank you so much. You are welcome. I've been festering with this since 2012. Well, I'm glad that I am able to put it out there, and I appreciate you coming forward with it. It's a big, big thing to do. It's about time. He's been missing for so long, and all I can think of is one of my children missing. Somebody knew something like this, didn't turn it in, didn't, he wasn't aware that something was turned in. I don't think they've done it. They didn't come back to me and say, well, why don't you try to be his friend in a couple years? I don't feel like they were really concerned about it. You think it just got thrown in the pile of tips and left? Like I said, I can read body language, so... spent the past nine hours of this show, this season, telling you about six months worth of time. Gently, tenderly leading you around on our preschool outside adventure rope. Now here we are ten years in the future from where we left off, like what? Where did you park the damn DeLorean? I'm starting this episode where it ends, fittingly, because this episode is, for the time being, where Damien's story ends. That won't be forever, I hope. If you didn't catch last week's episode, go back and give it a listen. Preferably before you listen to this episode, because like a real tricky dick, I've hidden all the geographical clues you need to understand this week's conclusion in that episode, my babies. All those questions I asked Barb Rollman and Linda White last week in the last 20 minutes or so of tape, those were for a damn good reason because all those questions I asked them, I already asked myself and a bunch of other people by last spring. And after I asked all those folks all those questions, we all got together with a handful of cadaver dogs to sniff the ground at Jake's Rocks on Memorial Day weekend of 2022. I'm not going to rehash that whole ordeal for you. You should go back and listen to season one of this show for all those sweet, sweet details. But... You need to know that the dogs doing the sniffing last Memorial Day don't show up any place unless law enforcement asks them to, and law enforcement, namely Chief Spraveri of the City of Warren Police Department, asked them to last year. While that search was unsuccessful, I'm pretty sure I know why, and it was a miscommunication and then an unwillingness to launch up from the briefing table like the goddamn Kraken the morning of that search, like I should have done but for which I still had not sprouted quite enough cojones. My bad. All day. I'm fixing it. Linda White, who you heard in the last episode, 
has been communicating with me for the past two weeks now to let me know that she did happen to have that human tooth in her training inventory, and she took it out in the woods with Canine Viper, and she tested him to see if he could find it. And he did. Then she tested him to see if he could find it when she hit it better and better and better, and he did, and he did, and he did. And then Linda tested him to see if he would tell her he found it when she showed him exactly where it was, like a helicopter dog mom from hell. He didn't do that because he's the goodest boy ever, which we also covered in great detail last week. So what I'm telling you is that when I told Linda in her interview that I had a, quote, lovely spot where she and Viper and I should take a new best friends walk, it was because I was already basically inviting her to Jake's Rocks this spring, again, with me, to do the informal site survey I should have done before yoinking Chief Spreveri's ear and his resources to get up there with super specific cadaver dogs before I was ready to dominate the fuck out of a meeting. I'm ready to dominate the shit out of any of those meetings I have from now on. Full transparency. Anyhow, that's the future. We're supposed to be going backward. So I'll keep you posted on the Viper situation as it unfolds, but let me let you in once and for all on why I can't let the hell go of Jake's rocks and Devil's Elbow until I am satisfied. I'm saying fully, gluttonously, satiated, and drooling in a corner on confirmation that there are no cadavers there whatsoever, let alone the remains of Damien Sharp. To do that, I want you to stick a pin in that story you just heard at the top of this episode and come with me back to March of 2003. It's this time of year, it's just 2003. John Herzog is finishing up his work for Damien's family and transitioning into a member of the City of Warren Police Department's support staff, apparently. But as he was prepping to fade out, with or without Damien's family paying him to work for the police, he got this one weird tip from a local business owner. Check this out. I met with District Attorney Richard Hernan, and a news release was prepared and given to the Warren Times Observer and the local radio station. We went to and interviewed Mr. advised that he has a friend who was up at Jake's Rocks Overlook, and a vehicle drove by her, and a short time later, there were two gunshots. said that the woman said that Damien Sharp was in the vehicle, along with Matt Hovey. then said that the girl's name was Beth Bradish, and uh, she lives in Central Avenue in Warren with her dad. said that uh, she talked to him a couple times about this. At this point, Herzog went to visit this woman and was told that she wasn't home, but she'd be back later. He then went to visit with Pat, who had given Damien the money for the weed he was buying that weekend. Later that day, Herzog returned to the woman's house to try and catch up with her. Here's what he learned. We went back and interviewed Beth Bradish, uh, a white female, age 33, and uh, she advised that on Memorial Day 2002, she went to Jake's Rock's Overlook and was sitting in her truck when a pickup truck went by her vehicle. Uh, that truck was an older model a red Ford full-size pickup truck. Uh, when the truck went by, uh, Damien Sharp was sitting in the passenger seat, and she said he had black hair and was wearing a white T-shirt. Uh, when the truck went by, the person that she thought was Damien leaned forward and waved at her. Uh, in the middle of the truck was a guy who looked like Matt Hovey, she said. The driver was approximately 37 years old and had long blonde hair and a mustache. Uh, the driver was kind of out of place, she said. Uh, she, she called him a scumbag. Uh, the truck went by, and 
couple minutes later, she said she heard two gunshots. She said she got out to uh, Jake's Rocks around 1.30 and uh, left at 2.18 p.m. She said she'd never seen the truck before or after that. Uh, she saw one other vehicle when she was there. Uh, after she heard the shots, she said she wanted to get out of there. The truck headed down towards Scenic Drive, so she headed down uh, 160 towards Warren. And when the shots came, it was from back towards uh, Forest Road 160. She said she'd uh, never partied with Damien and uh, mentioned she had seen a flyer with uh, Damien about a week later and uh, she felt that it was him in that truck. Uh, she said she hadn't seen Matt Hovey in years. She said that the truck was a faded old truck, uh, one like if you waxed it, it still wouldn't shine. Uh, the map that Beth drew indicated that the road to the Overlook uh, makes almost a circle. It uh, comes off Forest Road 160 and uh, circles and comes back onto 160. Uh, she said that the shot was in the area where the road comes back to 160, just down the road from the stop sign heading towards the scenic drive. Uh, it could have been on either side of the road. Herzog adds an additional caveat at the end of this note that I think we would do well to keep in mind, too. If this is a possible sighting, it would only indicate that he was in the area before his disappearance, and this sighting might have something to do with his disappearance, uh, not that he was shot at that time. So I just want to do a quick little narrative aside. The name Matt Hovey is one that I want us to take note of. Late last fall, I reached out to Beth Bradish and I asked her if she would speak with me for this podcast. I let her know that I had the tip from 2003 and that I'd really like to corroborate it as well as a bunch of little elements within it and ask some further follow-up questions, which I'll get to after the break. In any case, one of the things that I was hoping that Beth could corroborate for me was the name Matt Hovey because... Matt Hovey is actually married to someone you've already met throughout the course of this show, and that's Damien's friend, Danica Steck. Danica and Damien have been friends since fifth grade, so I reached out to Danica early last month. We sat together at a local restaurant and discussed the tip, which I showed to her in full, with a few of these names redacted, because up until just like five minutes ago, I still hadn't decided which names I was going to be publishing and why. In any case... Danica took this information home to Matt. She was pretty surprised that day. I think it took her really off guard. Later on, she got a hold of me and let me know that she spoke with Matt. She feels that it was a miscommunication. She feels that Matt's family knew John Herzog, and for some reason, she felt that it was not surprising to her that Herzog would include Matt's name. I did let her know that it wasn't a name that Herzog just pulled out of a hat. You know, it was a tip that Beth gave to Herzog, but... She spoke with Matt, and Matt and Danica both are adamant that he was not in that truck that weekend. So that's what I can tell you as far as corroborating that particular detail of the statement. Other than that, though, there are some other things we need to get to. Okay, this episode is a serious bitch because I've got about four timelines I'm trying to braid together for you in a coherent narrative. That makes me sound brilliant and frighteningly astute and not delusional or overly pattern-focused at all. I did it for Joe Spraveri, so goddammit, I can do it for you too. Okay. So, in the fall of 2021, I'm sitting in the police station after having wowed the department with my lengthy and annoyingly thorough dip into the waters of its spiciest open investigation. 
and I'm checking out this chart that was created in 2008 when Ray Zadonik took over as the department's chief and relaunched the detective's position, appointing Tony Comenti its new lead. An intern at the time created this really satisfying poster of names, timelines, tips, theories, and basic case information, including some tasty little details that I squirreled away, which represented my first actual investigative tasks. Check in those phone records, for instance, because there was Damien's phone number at that Cedar Street apartment. 814-723-5628. Little things like that, you guys, used to blow my mind. Anyhow, in the top left of this visual aid of the damn gods is a basic timeline of Damien's case. The timeline starts at the beginning of May with a fight between Mike Baxter and Damien, reported by Jessica, who's never turned up for an interview, by the way, despite several agreements between her and I to meet over the past almost year. So, Jessica, disappointing girl. Damien liked you. He liked you enough to piss Mike Baxter off over it. It's disappointing to me that you won't stand up for him now. Anyhow. The timeline ends on June 3rd with Damien's mom, Janine Shanahan's official report to police. But right above that, on Monday, May 27th, two days after anyone last saw him, is this report from Beth Bradish. And down below that, with an arrow pointing from Mike Bradish's name, is a theory from 2012. When you read through that theory... It lays out a story in which this tipster is told by Bradish that, quote, he killed Damien Sharp up at Devil's Elbow because he was selling drugs to young kids, end quote. There are nine names with 17 separate theories connected to them on this charted version of Damien's case. Only one of those names shows up twice across two separate entries, and that's Bradish. We'll talk about it more after this break. I was recently asked if I had any headshots that made me look less crazy, and I did not. Thank God Phil Gilbert of Just Phil Photography in Warren, PA is a thing. I mean, he's not a thing, he's a person. Never mind. Look. Nouns are nouns, and Phil is rad because if you loathe the experience of having your photo taken and every photo of yourself for that reason, Phil's your guy. Phil will make you smile for real, and here's the thing. He gets why you want the photos you want, so that feeling we're all trying to capture in a physical photograph, that's Phil's thing. If you want a photo of your family that translates easily to a cardboard cutout, you can probably just go to a department store photo studio if you can even still find one. Best of luck with that, I guess. But if you want to look back on your special day or memory or human and feel that feeling all over again, call Phil. Even if you want to look the opposite of not crazy, he can make you look utterly, utterly out of your mind, too. He's down for whatever. Visit JustPhilPhotography.com. That's J-U-S-T philphotography.com. All the cool kids are doing it. So let's talk about who Mike Bradish is. But first, let's talk about who he's not. 
Mike Bradish is not someone that the police have ever interviewed himself, nor has he ever been named a person of interest in the Damien Sharp investigation. I'm not sure why Mike has never been interviewed, but he hasn't. So I want to state really profoundly clearly that what we have here is a tip that police investigated, which has not gone any further than that initial investigation. I'm able to tell you about it today because the person who gave it was willing to speak on tape with me. I'm using no police resources here for this 2012 tip, just the tipster's memory. It's an unverified tip about a person who was never interviewed or named as a suspect. So I'm not telling you that this confession changes one thing at all, because I can confess to killing Damien Sharp right now if I want to. It doesn't make it true. I'm not, to also be exceedingly transparent here, confessing. It's hypothetical. Look, Mike Bradish, for our purposes, is just some dude whose name we just found out and about whom I do have a story, yes, that I promise you I'm about to tell, but just please... Keep that in mind as you go about the rest of your day. Don't be a dick to Mike or anyone that Mike knows just because I told you this story. Do not. I can't be more clear than that. Don't be a dick in any way because of what I'm about to tell you. All right. Michael John Bradish was 35 years old when Damien went missing, and he was working for Marv Ross, the local concrete contractor whose name is plated into the sidewalks and driveways of this county in the sidewalks and driveways that he's built over several decades. Marv died in 2014, and Mike inherited his business. But we're back to the future again. Let's get the hell out of there real quick. Back in 2002, Mike was 35. He has a birthday coming up, March 15th. Mike lived on Weiler Road in Starbrick with his girlfriend, and weirdly, while Damien was still in high school, Mike lived briefly at 20 Linwood Street. Their backyards would have abutted one another. I actually looked up the ownership on that address, figuring it was a rental, and yep, Mike actually rented from my first landlords when I moved back to Warren, Richard and Carol Craker. Anyhow, Mike was living on Weiler Road and doing whatever it is that Mike did. People I've talked to remember him from back in the day. He liked the bars, the cornerstone, and the draft house, according to those who recall him. And people say he could be rowdy when he got drunk. Otherwise, when he was sober, he was a fairly decent, nondescript kind of a guy. I went ahead and just created a little timeline for Mike that follows his legal history through the years, starting with September of 2002. And I welded Mike's timeline with Damien's, and I've had this chart hanging around with me, rolled up, drawn out on paper table covering since last October. Here's how it goes. May 25th, 2002, Damien Sharp goes missing. September 1st, 2002, Mike got his first, I wouldn't say it's necessarily violent, but it's on the low end of that spectrum. It was for the simple assault of his girlfriend at their Weiler Road home when a drunken verbal altercation turned into Mike taking his girlfriend's keys from her when she tried to leave, disconnecting the phone when she tried to call 911, and hitting her in the back of the head when she walked out the door after getting her keys back from him. Mike's girlfriend drove to Warren, and police were dispatched to Weiler Road for a 911 hang-up. There, they encountered Mike, passed out, drunk on the sofa. When questioned, Mike told Officer Jason Peters of the Conewango Township Police that there had been an argument and she'd driven to her mother's place in Warren. He was charged with simple assault and harassment. On March 19, 2003, Beth gave her statement to Herzog. Here, listen to that statement one more time. We went back and interviewed Beth Bradish, uh, a white female, age 33, 
and uh, she advised that on Memorial Day 2002, she went to Jake's Rock's Overlook and was sitting in her truck when a pickup truck went by her vehicle. Uh, that truck was an older model, a red Ford full-size pickup truck. Uh, when the truck went by, uh, Damien Sharp was sitting in the passenger seat, and she said he had black hair and was wearing a white T-shirt. Uh, when the truck went by, the person that she thought was Damien leaned forward and waved at her. Uh, in the middle of the truck was a guy who looked like Matt Hovey, she said. The driver was approximately 37 years old and had long blonde hair and a mustache. Uh, the driver was kind of out of place, she said. Uh, she, she called him a scumbag. Uh, the truck went by, and a couple minutes later, she said she heard two gunshots. She said she got out to uh, Jake's Rocks around 1.30 and uh, left at 2.18 p.m., she said she had never seen the truck before or after that. Uh, she saw one other vehicle when she was there. Uh, after she heard the shots, she said she wanted to get out of there. So up until I got these Herzog notes, you guys, I had literally that much of the story. That's it. And I couldn't even reference it all. If the police department had not released this report, I wouldn't be able to tell you about it today, even though I know about it. Unless Beth would say yes to coming on tape for you about it which she wouldn't and hasn't, and which is her right. Especially since moving forward in Mike's timeline, it was March 19th when Beth spoke with Herzog, giving him information about having seen Damien at Jake's Rocks days after he went missing. On March 31st of that year, Bradish saw the case involving his girlfriend from the previous September continued to the next term as he'd entered an inpatient facility. In July of 2023, Assistant District Attorney Amy Johnson petitioned for Null Pross, and I still don't know if that's how you say that, so we're going to say NP from now on in the matter, quote, in the interest of justice, end quote. That request was made on July 7th of 2003, granted on July 8th, according to court documents. Six months later, on September 17th, 2003, apparently out of treatment, Mike called the house Beth shared with their father, asking for him. Beth told Mike that their dad was sleeping, at which point he started calling her names, telling her to, quote, sleep with one eye open, bitch. I'm going to put a bullet in your head, end quote. Eight days after that, on September 25th of 2003, Mike showed up at Beth's and, quote, grabbed her around the neck, throwing her to the couch and floor, end quote. Beth told police, according to that affidavit in this incident, that their dad was in the room and trying to call police when Mike, quote, pulled his arm back as if to punch him in the face, instead taking the phone out of his hands, end quote, before returning to Beth. As Mike beat Beth, he told her, quote, you wait, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. You're done. You wait until I see you on the street somewhere. I'm going to beat you so bad there'll be nothing left. I'm going to beat you down so hard. You just wait. This behavior, Beth wrote in a statement the same day, September 25th, 2003, quote, is an ongoing thing of saying he will kill me, end quote. On November 11th, 2003, Mike was observed visiting the home of a known female associate yelling loud enough to be heard by the neighbors, quote, I'm going to kill you, bitch, and banging on the door and surrounding windows, end quote. As the person he was there to harass stayed on the phone with 911 dispatchers, Bradish apparently tired of trying to make contact and got back in his car, driving to Huey's Place, a local bar in Youngsville, about a 15-minute drive from the site of his most recent crime. A Pennsylvania State Police trooper watched him as he parked at the bar and, quote, staggered 
end quote, out of the vehicle and into the road before the trooper helped him to the sidewalk but was, quote, unable to administer standard field sobriety tests due to the extreme level, end quote, of Mike Bradish's intoxication. Then things actually calmed down for Mike for a few years. In 2006, he found himself in a sort of deja vu kind of moment, though, with his girlfriend from 2002, the victim of his simple assault. On October 1st of 2006, Officers Doherty and Deppin of the City and Warren Police Department were dispatched to a residence on Warren's east side for a 911 hang-up. All too familiar, honestly. So this night, the woman he'd apparently simply assaulted and, I guess, gently harassed in 2002, returned home from bartending to find Mike passed out on her sofa. Assuming that he'd sleep it off, she went upstairs and went to sleep. That was around 1 a.m., she told police, according to the affidavit. She awoke to Mike Bradish, quote, pulling her out of her bed, and throwing her into a wall, punching her in the face around ten times, end quote. Though she, quote, pled with him to stop, saying you're going to kill me, end quote, Bradish answered only, quote, good, that's what I want, end quote. At one point, Mike stopped hitting the woman, and she was able to break away from him, going downstairs to call 911, and Mike followed her, again, familiar, and when she couldn't find her cell phone, she went to the basement to use a landline phone that was there. When she picked up that landline phone, though, hopefully not surprisingly to you at this point, she found it to be disconnected. Police arrived to find the victim waiting outside and Mike sitting alone in an upstairs bathroom, the affidavit tells us. He resisted arrest at that time and was charged with resisting as well as terroristic threats, simple assault, and harassment as a result of that altercation. Just so you know, Mike has been charged with no felonies yet by 2006. He's beat two women's asses three times between them, but no felonies, so... Just stick that wherever you want. I have a few ideas. Anyhow. Also, as a result of that altercation, another protection from abuse order was filed against Mike, this time from his girlfriend, who he just assaulted for a second time, to a largely escalated degree, from the 2002 incident. Arguments police had learned in that time had begun between the two around July of 2002, with Mike calling to have her removed from his house that they shared on Weiler Road back then. It apparently hadn't improved by the time of his first assault on the books in September of 2002. Anyhow, when someone asks the police to protect them from you, one of the first things that happens is the sheriff's deputies show up to take your firearms because if someone's that concerned about your ability to not harm them, it's probably best that someone just hang on to the boomsticks till all that shit gets worked out. Yeah, I think. I mean, people take advantage of this fact all the time and file PFAs for stupid reasons just because their ex-husband loves to hunt and they love to fuck with their ex-husband, or vice versa. I'm just saying, this is exactly the reason the sheriff takes your guns when someone files a PFA on you. It's for dudes like this, and I'm glad they do it, and I'm not even a little sorry. I give zero shits about your Second Amendment rights, to be honest. All my shits go directly into caring deeply about not being shot in the face by a fragile male ego in a pickup truck playing country music and reeking of natty ice. But whatever. Anyhow. So Mike Bradish, whose first rodeo this certainly was not, took his guns over to his dad's place, where three years earlier he'd woken his sister up from a dead sleep by yoinking her off the couch and throwing her to the floor before telling her that he was going to, quote, put a bullet in her head and, quote, beat her down so hard that there would be nothing left, end quote. So all that happens in October 2006. Guns get taken to dads, right? But on January 12th of 2007, Mike shows up late at his dad's door, asking to come in and eat some fast food he had with him. He told his dad as he ate that, quote, 
Police are after me for my drunk driving all the time, end quote. The two argued over his drinking, the affidavit in this incident tells us, and his dad could tell that Mike was drunk that night. Mike told him, his dad told police, that, quote, I'm going to get one of my shotguns and blast their ass off if they come after me, end quote. The next day, Mike's dad reports that his house has been burglarized. When police show up, they encounter a basement door with an external lock damaged by a pickaxe, which the culprit had left leaned up against the doorframe there, and one of Mike's eight guns had been removed, a Remington 870 Express 12-gauge shotgun. His other seven guns and all the ammo that were there were accounted for. He just took that one turkey gun. The police found it under his bed at his 2007 apartment on North Carver Street a few blocks from his dad's place. Mike walks away from that incident one gun lighter and two dockets heavier, the first for burglary, a first-degree felony, and the second for persons not to possess firearms, a first-degree misdemeanor. And it gets really convoluted here because he's got charges from his November of 2003 drinking and banging on doors adventure, he's got terroristic threats, DUI, blood alcohol greater than the legal limit in Pennsylvania of 0.08%. He's also got charges from the 2006 assault, number two, on victim number one. Jesus, yeah. One, which got him another terroristic threats, harassment, and resisting arrest. Pile on his F1 burglary and PFA firearms violation on top of all that, and on March 9th, he's sentenced for that second slew of charges for the 2006 arrest. I know, just hang in there. He's sentenced for some shit on March 9th of 2007, okay? But on March 26th, about two weeks later, District Attorney, now Ross McKiernan, orders all those charges NP. On May 23rd of 2007, Bradish's felony burglary charge falls away, and his PFA firearms violation for having his gun at the same time that he had a PFA, but not for breaking into his dad's basement to get it, goes forward to court. On August 27th of 2007, Ross McKiernan orders that gun, which had been held in evidence during the intervening months, destroyed. The custodian of the gun ordered it destroyed two days later, on August 29th, 2007, and that's all we know about that gun. I had a question about that gun, though, for Mike, which I asked him, along with a bunch of other stuff, right before he finally blocked me. I'd messaged Mike on Facebook several times before that on an account he friend-requested my personal page from a few months after I told you guys that I was doing this podcast on Facebook. He always read my messages. He never responded. This day, though, I asked him the following things. Hey, Mike, I said, so I have two questions. You probably won't answer, and you don't have to, but I'm just doing what I do, and I like to tell true stories, so I like to get clarification directly from the people in those stories when I can. This may or may not ever be a story I tell, but that's the work, finding out, you know? Anyhow, so first, on May 23rd, 2006, you had a probation violation. It was for drinking on a forestry road. Which forestry road was that? Second question is, when you went to get the gun back from your dad's, why that one? I'd sent this dude probably half a dozen messages at this point. All really sweet and polite and not shrill or demanding at all. I was getting tired now. Just a few minutes after I asked it, I got my answer. Well, no answer. That would have been nice, but I did get a response. Seven words, moments later. Quote, you're an idiot. Don't bother me again. End quote. Copy that, I told Mike, but he doesn't know I confirmed because I was already blocked when I sent that response. I have actually reached out to Mike multiple times on a second account he has, which I'm not blocked on, but Mike's never even read any of those. I still offered him one last opportunity to talk to me up to like literally right this minute on Wednesday as I finish all this shit up and get ready to send it out into the ether to you, dear listeners. 
So just for full transparency, I've talked to all three of the women that Mike's dated and assaulted, and I've tried to talk to his sister, who understandably wants neither jack and or shit to do with me. I get it. I just really wish we could get to the bottom of who might have been the long-haired, mustachioed, blonde scumbag driving that truck, and who else might have been in the middle other than Matt Hovey. Danica told me there are lots of people around who look like Matt. Lots of chances for mistaken identity there. Anyhow, it's in 2010 that Mike winds up having this really drunken encounter with our tipster whose name you'll never hear from me, which is my gift to them for being willing to put this out here for you, for your consideration. And shortly after that confession they reported, Mike went for a second time to inpatient treatment. It was at that point that this source told me they stopped having contact with Mike. So how did they start? By happenstance. In summer of 2010, this source shared with police that the previous week they'd spent the night and into the early morning talking with Mike. Having fallen off the sobriety wagon, this person told police, Mike asked them to lend an ear. This conversation was on again, off again, this person told police that summer, because Mike would nod off during it and then wake up, talk some more, drink a couple beers, and doze back off. During his talkative moments, though, the person told police, Mike told them he'd been at Devil's Elbow with Carl Davis, Robert Proctor, Robert Wenzel, whose nickname was Plowboy, and Marv Ross. He told this person the first time they talked that Carl had a gun to his head and was yelling at him to shoot Damien, and Mike told them he did it. The next time they talked, this person said, was when he added that Marv Ross was there, and he said that it was actually Marv Ross who had the gun to his head. Mike also told this person that he had something terrible to show them, but he never did show them anything, they told police. Over the course of days this conversation took place, this person told me, they asked Mike at one point how he and the others got Damien up to Devil's Elbow, and he said they just hunted him down and took him up there. All of them had been doing coke when they killed Damien, Mike told this person, and then, after several days of this, the last time this person went to visit Mike, the police were at his door. After that, they told me, they were never really able to talk to Mike afterward. He became, they said, standoffish after he went to treatment again. Here, listen. Okay. And what what caused you to go to the police with this information? A gentleman that lived close by me, I was checking on him because that person's an alcoholic. And I kept trying to encourage that person to... Uh, he deserves that be- you deserve better and he kept saying no he's an asshole he's no good and i'm like why and he came right out and he goes because i killed damien sharp first i'm like oh you're just saying that are you trying to say he goes no it's the truth i said then tell me and he told me that it was all over cocaine he didn't go into detail about that part but damien had to be taken down they were at supposedly some Marian big ends, big bend. We'll say all purposes name X for the person that had the gun to this person's head. They had to take the gun to Damien's head. This person has been cemented and he's somewhere up in Big Ben, is what I was told. There was another guy involved. Um, for all purposes, he has a nickname that I wouldn't say in public. Um Thing. The police did want me to go on with uh, undercover, but all of a sudden this person decided to go to rehab and would never talk to me again. Did he give any kind of reason or motivation? Or? It was over drugs. Over drugs. It was over, from what I understand, cocaine. There was too much missing. 
Did he say how he met Damien or knew Damien or just through the sale? And... Unfortunately, Damien was into drugs. Yeah. And it was through that. And the axe was a major contributor to dealing drugs in the area. Did he tell you how the day went down? Like, did he tell you, did they plan this or was it? They were all to meet up at, at Big Ben. And there were a bunch and of people. And it was pre-planned. And they kept, from what I understand, X questioned him about it and he didn't have the right answer. X put the gun to this person's head and this person had to take out Damien. And he shot him, he said. That's what I'm understanding. He had to shoot him in the head. Okay. Did they say what they did with him after? They said he's been cemented and he's up Big Ben somewhere. Okay. He's in Big Ben. I mean, he could be anywhere. Yeah. If you put him in cement. Yeah. There's a lot of land up there. That's a big place. Um, And this person is known in this town. And this person is... New attorneys, high-end people that do cocaine in this town. So I'm suspicious that there's something else behind this also. When you went to the police station, what was their reaction? Was Were they... I talked to a police officer and they had me go in and talk to the detectives. And they wanted me to text them. And I had a private text, you know, open. I tried to bring the conversation back up again. He goes, what are you at? A CO, confidential, or CI or something, mm-hmm. I can't remember what he said. I'm like, no, I just think that you like to make up stories when you're drunk. And he didn't want to talk about it. He helped me get into the, I helped him get him to the hospital and he went to rehab. When he came home, he wouldn't even answer the door for yeah. me. And he never spoke about it again? Not to me. He will not even acknowledge me. And have you seen him around since then? And yes, just... I have. Okay. Are you afraid of this person? I'm not afraid of this particular person. I'm afraid of the people that might behind, be behind the whole thing. Because there's, there's, I don't know if it's gang related, mafia related, or what related it is, but it's related to something bigger, oh, I believe. Something like drugs, like a bag. X was a big part of it. So I'm going to tell you something right now. I don't give a fuck who is related to If anybody wants to have any issues with anybody in this story, um, your issue is right here with me. I'm the one naming your name. It's not this source. It's not any other source. Beth didn't ask to be involved in this. Very few people asked to be involved in this. And if there's anybody that anybody's afraid of, all you fuckers can come see me. Because I'm here to take the band-aid off the wound and get all the fucking shit out of it. And this is what it takes. You can be pissed at me. Um, and then you told the story again, too, recently, right? Um, um, yeah, recently there was an issue that I, I noticed something was wrong and they wanted me to talk to the FBI. This is another issue. And I had stated to the FBI about that issue. They rewrote the name and I said this person was possibly in jail, but apparently they got out. So what they're doing with that, I don't know. I don't get told anything. And I just think that, you know... They're not working hard enough. Do you think that anything, do you think that this person was ever questioned or do you suspect? I don't believe so. Okay. Because I spend a lot of time, I don't know if you've ever watched the behavior panel. He's a big man, a husky man, I should say. And he was involved in some heavy duty shit. I don't know that he is now, but he was. Okay. 
So just to be really clear, this person said that they were at the area of Big Bend. So I know now, right now, as a fact, that this person, Mike Bradish, has never actually been questioned by police. And here's the deal with that. Unless police want to charge him with something, he kind of has to want to show up for an interview. And also, there's a couple of sealed documents related to Mike Bradish's case that are not open for public discussion that I cannot see. He's had enough encounters with law enforcement over the years, including straight up through 2018 when he was still getting DUIs. When he had any opportunity to drop some Damien Sharp information as a golden goose, I just find it hard to believe that nothing would have ever come of that if it were a true golden goose and if it truly got him out of some shit. So, I don't know. I don't know what it would take for police to talk to Mike Bradish. I think it would be really cool if they did, and I hope that if they ever, ever do talk to Mike Bradish about this crazy-ass fucking confession that he just dropped on this person's doorstep one day, (laughs) uh, they keep me posted, and I will keep all of you posted, because at this point, hopefully... I have earned enough respect and rapport to at least get tipped off for that deal. (laughs) I love you guys. Thank you for all your help. At this point, I'm going to quickly transition. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about last year's Jake's Rock Search. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what I hope to do this year coming up and in the years to follow. And at that point, I am going to leave you off with what we have here. So basically, I told you guys exactly where I want to go. I used these two tips, the 2003 tip and the 2010 tip from this additional source. Putting them together, I narrowed down a spot that topographically, looking at the way that the hill is composed, just looking at the way that the runoff would have to go, I've narrowed down a little spot up at Jake's Rocks where the mountain bike trails actually lead down to Devil's Elbow. It's following a basic set of trails like Devil's Drop. You guys can get online and look at those maps. Linda White and I are going to be heading out sometime in March with Canine Viper to see if he reacts to any of that area around what basically amounts to a giant cistern up there. The cistern was built shortly after the construction of the dam and it feeds the Kinzu Point Information Center. So basically, this is a 12-foot concrete well that's built into the hill, kind of between Jake's Rocks and Devil's Elbow. You got a large box on top of it ostensibly I'm guessing for chlorination or some other filtration process. I'm not sure if that's used though. I'm not sure if this is potable water or if that process of making the water potable goes into it later on. In any case, the cistern is spring fed. It would be turned on right around Memorial Day weekend every year and it would be turned off right around Labor Day every year. When they go up to turn it on, they turn on the hydraulics, the spring feeds the cistern, the cistern feeds the information center as the water is used, and as it's used, the spring continues to fill the cistern, so there's no real maintenance to it between Memorial and Labor Day weekends. It's just the ANF folks going up, turning on the spring, turning off the spring, shutting off the hydraulics down the hill into the information center. That's right around where Linda and I are going to start this dog, and we're just going to look around for any kind of anomalies, anything that's different up there. It's getting to be outside time, you guys. This is where I want you to pay attention. If you find anything, fucking anything, that to you warrants a call, and I'm not saying to call these police officers every minute up to Jake's Rocks, that's a waste of time, but if you do find something, if you find crutches. You're not going to find crutches. God, can you imagine if the crutches still exist? I guarantee you they wound up at Goodwill or off a bridge, these people. 
if you find anything up there that strikes you as a potential site where a body might have been left, I want you to call the City of Warren Police Department, 814-723-2700, and leave it the fuck alone, okay? Leave it alone. I want you to leave it alone and call the actual cops. I'm not an actual cop. You're not an actual cop. I want you to call the real cops and leave it alone. Mark the area. Leave someone there with the item. Go get the cops. Bring them to it or else mark the area. Don't forget where you left it and bring the cops to it. This is our spot, you guys. This is the best lead that we have. This is the weirdest situation and story I remember looking at this chart thinking there's no way. There's no way. I saw Marv Ross's name and I was like, there is no way. But even if part of that story, even if two words of that story are true and Marv Ross, part of it is complete bullshit, I don't care. I'm going to dig down. If you know of any connection between Jim Sarver, who was the last person to see Damien alive on May 25th, 2002, any connection between Jim Sarver, Marv Ross, Mike Bradish, Carl Davis, Bob Proctor, or Robert Wenzel plowboy you let me know this is where we're at you guys at this point i'm depending on all of you and you can all depend on me to keep working this case as long as i can if i'm able to get a dog that's what i'm gonna do if i'm not able to get a dog you better believe i'm gonna find somebody who has one and we're gonna make best friends and we're gonna be out there until i am satisfied that jake's rocks and this entire theory is complete bullshit so mike if i am an idiot like you said i will let the world know that too as soon as I come down to the bottom of this tip. Otherwise, my line remains open. 814-230-5855. Give me a call. I would love to talk. Oh, and the one last thing I wanted to do was wrap up why last year's search was unsuccessful. Here's why. I only got the second half of Beth's tip about that really fine detail information about where she heard those gunshots, which was not in the area of this well. That being said, I have no way to verify any of this information. Beth won't talk to me and that's fine. Again, that's her right. However, without the ability to really verify that information, the dogs that we took up to Jake's Rocks last Memorial Day started right along the roadside and we did not venture far enough down that little forestry road that I was describing to Barb and Linda in the last episode to get to that well. What needs to happen is we need to start at that well and actually using some water data from Devil's Elbow as well as some information from a forensics guy that someone else knows, I was able to determine that it's unlikely that any biological material would have run from this area up around this well, down that hill and into Devil's Elbow past the point of five years. We're well past that point right now, so basically that's why Linda continues training on teeth. I will of course keep you posted if anything comes from any of that. You keep me posted if you find any weird shit in those woods, and together you and me and the rest of this community are going to find Damien. Let's find Damien, you guys. true crime podcast written and told by me, Stacey Gross of Two Moms Media. Your producers are me and Brian Hagberg of Your Daily Local. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. Dean Wells provided the voice of John Herzog in this episode. Big thanks, Dean, for that. 
If you have information to share with police about Damien or his case, call Detective Tiffany Post at 814-723-2700. If you have stories, memories, or information about Damien or his case that you don't want to share with police, text me instead at 814-230-5855. If you like this show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you're using to listen. It makes a big difference for us, and it also helps more people learn about Damien and his case. Until next week, kids. Until next time, kids. Eyes and ears open. And let's find Damien.